Good morning. How's everybody doing? Everybody doing good this Christmas season? All right, all right. Well, hey, I got a, uh, I, I got a phrase here that I'm going to put up on the screen in just a moment. And I want, I want you to think to yourself, have I ever heard this phrase? Have I ever heard this phrase? And here's the phrase. You ready for it? The son of Panthera. The son of Panthera. Has anyone ever heard that phrase? Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. No one. All right. I, I suspected perhaps one. John? No, it's not, not an 80s metal rock band. That's a good, that's a, that's a nice, nice try. Now, the son of Panthera is a very peculiar phrase. But you're going to know about it uh, as, as we go through uh, our time today. You see, th- this phrase... Uh, in the middle 2nd century A.D., a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus, or Celassus as some call him, but we're going to call him Celsus, that was his original name. About 175 A.D., a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus wrote his most infamous book, and it was called The True Word. But Celsus' book was anything but true. The subject of his book was Christianity. The objective of his book was to discredit and disprove the claims of the Christian faith. Scholars believe that Celsus' work was the earliest known comprehensive attack on Christianity. And a most peculiar statement appeared in Celsus' work back in approximately 175 A.D. And it was this phrase. The mother of Jesus was turned out or put out by the carpenter who was engaged to her because she had been convicted of adultery and had a child by a soldier named Panthera. 175 A.D., The Greek philosopher Celsus claimed that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of a Roman soldier named Panthera. Where would he come up with such a wild and fanciful tale? Was Robert E. Van Verst writes, Panthera was a common name among Roman soldiers in the period of Jesus Christ. So it was a common name, a common surname, if you will. In fact, a gravestone has been found to confirm this. There was one Tiberius Panthera whose gravestone was dated 9 A.D. that has been excavated from that time period. But Verst goes on to say this. He says, but most interpreters hold that this name, Panthera, was used by some Jews because of its similarity to Parthenos. Virgin. If this is the case, it would mean that this is a Jewish reaction to the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth. Let me show you what we mean by that. In time, in the Christian tradition, of course, Mary having been uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, it came to be known that Jesus was the son of a virgin. Hahuias tes parthenos. The son of a virgin, Parthenu. In time, it's estimated by some scholars 
that this phrase, the son of a virgin, came to be mocked, came to be ridiculed, came to be called into question by the people of that day, and this is what they said in response to it. They said, the son of a panther, hahuyas tes pantheru. Only the N and the R would have been flipped in this case. And of course, the term pantheru was a Roman soldier's surname, a very common Roman soldier's surname of that day. And so in mockery of the idea of the notion that Jesus was the son of a virgin, scholars estimate that some of the Jews and perhaps some Romans with them responded mockingly, Hahuyas tes pantheru. This mocking nature of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ became so prevalent that even in the Jewish Mishnah, in Shabbat section 104, it is said that Mary of Nazareth was the paramour of Pandera. That is to say, the lover of Panthera. That's found in the Jewish Mishnah. Now, why do I bring up this obscure story? Why do I bring up such an eccentric tale that Jesus was the son of a Roman soldier named Panthera? Because, friends, the enemy, the adversary, has long been at work in trying to corrupt and make illegitimate the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Today we're in the second part of a three-part series entitled The Inevitability of Christ's Advent. The Inevitability of Christ's Advent. And in each of these messages, we are witnessing great attempts by the enemy of God to overtake the message of light, Jesus Christ. But as we are reminded from last week, John 1.5 says very clearly, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. In part one last week, we saw the enemy's vain attempt to overtake the light by by attempting to kill the Christ child by means of Herod the Great. But the darkness did not overtake it. Today we will see another plot by the enemy, but this scheme doesn't involve murder. Instead, it involves the corruption of Messiah's lineage. In today's message, we will see the enemy attempting to bring charges of illegitimacy to Jesus' birth. Part two of our Christmas series this year is entitled, The Mercy That Trumped Apparent Illegitimacy. The mercy that trumped apparent illegitimacy. Now, illegitimacy in Jesus' day was a major, major charge. In fact, it is said in the law in Deuteronomy 22, if, if a man and a woman were to commit adultery with one another, that both of them, both of them were to be stoned to death. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 22. In the very next chapter, in Deuteronomy 23, particularly verse 2, it is said of of the child that one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. 
even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And so you can see clearly that if the adversary, if Satan, could somehow make illegitimate the birth of Jesus Christ, well then, there's no way Messiah could lead God's people if He couldn't even enter the assembly of the Lord. If the enemy could, if the enemy could not kill the Christ child, as we saw last week, Perhaps instead he could plant seeds of doubt in the minds of all who hear of the supposed virgin birth of Jesus Christ. A virgin birth? The enemy would whisper. Who could believe such a fanciful tale? This woman is no virgin, he would say. The child in her womb is either the untimely offspring of Joseph's or worse, Perhaps it isn't Joseph's at all. But a virgin birth? Well, that's preposterous. And some would be deceived by the enemy's plot. But the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. While the adversary would diligently seek to bring disgrace to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus Himself, God would supply all of them with great grace and abundance. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read through portions of the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Take a look at Matthew chapter 1, and we are going to begin our time today in verse 18. We're going to continue through verse 25 this morning. Matthew 1, verse 18, says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now briefly, I want to consider the word betrothed there. It's a peculiar word. It's one that we uh, might think of as engaged in our culture. But actually, uh, it's quite different than engagement. In fact, one scholar said this about the word betrothal here in the New Testament. He says, betrothal in ancient Israel was much more than an engagement in our times and was practically equivalent to a formal marriage. The engaged bride was legally considered as a wife. A betrothal could only be broken by a regular divorce. So as you can see here, a first century Jewish betrothal was so much more than an engagement is today. Uh, we're, uh, in our day, engaged couples, uh, some, some people get engaged and then they separate. There's no divorce involved in that. There's, there's simply an understanding that the marriage wasn't to be. Well, in that day and age, that, that would not have happened. Or if it would have happened, it would have been a much more significant deal. There would have actually had to have been a written certificate of divorce after the betrothal had commenced. Men in first century Israel would marry young, as would women. Uh, the average age of a man was approximately 18 years of age. But some would marry as early as 16 
others as late as 22. Women in the first century would marry as young as 12. And you might think, man, that sounds awfully early, and it is. But you've got to remember in that day and age, um, to have a quiver full of children was a form of protection. To have a family that was well populated was a form of honor, but also protection in the ancient Near East. The more people you had, the more arms, the more bodies there were to protect your family's interests. And so the men and the women would marry very, very young. Parents would choose husbands for their daughters. The husband-to-be would offer a significant dowry called a mohar to the family of the bride. In fact, I want to discuss briefly the idea of the dowry requirements. There were different dowry requirements for uh, different types of first century Jewish women. For instance, dowry for a first century Jewish widow, 100 denarius, which is approximately $8,250. The dowry for a first century Jewish woman was 200 denarius, which is approximately $16,500. And the dowry for Neil's 21st century American daughter due in March... Well, that's priceless. So I wanted to be clear about that. Jacob Eichler, DJ Rosepink, who else? My daughter Mallory is going to cost a whole lot of money. Significant dowry, isn't it? I mean, in today's terms, I tried to put it in today's terms, uh, a first century Jewish widow, you, you, you men would have to pay $16,000 for. That, that's that's a, a sum of change. And friends, that's on the lower end, by the way. That's on the lower end. If she was, a more, uh, if she was from a more aristocratic family, that price would go up significantly. In fact, it is said that there were dowries as large as one million denarius. I'll let you calculate that out later one day. Upon acceptance of the dowry, a one-year a one-year betrothal period would commence. There was to be no cohabitation. There was to be no sexual relations. Hence, we see in Matthew 1, verse 18, before they came together. The terms husband and wife were used during the betrothal period. There was a week-long marriage celebration followed by a wedding supper and then the consummation of the marriage. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She had committed herself to him. And now she was with child. And the child was not his. In this culture... In that day, the predicament Mary found herself in was very, very serious. After all, who would believe such a fanciful tale? A virgin conceived of the Holy Spirit. The seeds of doubt from the enemy filled Mary's mind. And if no one would believe her, what might happen? But the light shines in the darkness. 
and the darkness did not overtake it. God showed mercy to Mary. He showed mercy in a very peculiar way. When Mary heard from the angel Gabriel that she was with child, a story we can read in Luke 1, I have a question for you. What happened after that? My question is, after the angel announced to Mary she would be the mother of the Messiah, where did Mary go? Anybody remember? Where did Mary go? She went to the house of Elizabeth in the hills of Judea. She went to visit her cousin Elizabeth in the hillside communities of Judea. Now, why was this an act of mercy by God? Why was this an act of great grace? Immediately after learning of her newfound pregnancy, Mary was able to travel to a woman who shared her visions from an angel. You see, Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, prior to Mary's vision by the angel Gabriel, had a vision in the Jerusalem temple. Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he would be the father of one named John the Baptist. Elizabeth, his wife, would bear a son in her old age. And of all the people that Mary could have gone to, that Mary could have spoken to, that Mary could have walked up to and said, this is what just happened. The Lord gave to Mary in His grace, in His mercy, the person of Elizabeth to speak about and to discuss with her the vision of the angel. Just seeing Elizabeth brought Mary peace. Because as the angel Gabriel told Mary, Elizabeth was also with child. And so when Mary walked up to Elizabeth, she could see in her old age a child grew within her womb. It brought Mary immediate peace. She could rest assured that the angelic vision she had experienced was real. But secondly, and perhaps most mercifully, while in Elizabeth's care, Mary was able to process all the implications her pregnancy would have had on her and on those she knew and loved. God gave Mary time. He gave her time. Three months, in fact, before the day would come when she would announce her pregnancy to her parents and to Joseph. Elizabeth's presence alongside Mary was a great act of God's mercy and grace. As one A.T. Robertson said, the two women understood each other at once as only woman, a woman can at such a time as that. Jesus was coming. Mary was being encouraged in the care of Elizabeth. For what, and she was being prepared for what lied ahead. The enemy's schemes were awaiting her, but God's mercy was already at work. In time... Elizabeth would give birth to John the Baptist. And the time came for Mary to go home. Despite Elizabeth's encouragement and despite the, mutual, the, mutual, uh, the mutuality they shared together, as Mary got back on that donkey and made the trek back to Nazareth, the many miles back, I think she still felt a great deal of trepidation and fear. You see, as she rode back toward Nazareth, she recognized that she would be forced to announce her pregnancy 
Because by now she was already showing. The child was already evident in her womb. Why was she so fearful of making known her pregnancy? Well, for starters, she had told no one but Elizabeth up until that day. And Mary wondered if even Elizabeth would have believed her had it not been for her husband's vision. And now Mary rightly feared what her parents might think of her. Greater still, she agonized over what Joseph might think of her. She knew that the charges of illegitimacy in her culture were terrifying and real. Punishable by as much as stoning. I want to read to you a novel by Esther Kellner. A selection in her novel called Mary of Nazareth. It takes some liberties. She takes some liberties in the, in the story of, of Mary's return to, to Nazareth. But nevertheless, the depth of emotion and the depth of passion and the depth of Mary's fear and trepidation, I find it in this greater than I find it anywhere else. Listen to what Esther Kellner writes as Mary was preparing to return home. Joseph will turn from me utterly, Mary thought, as will all others of the village. Surely Joseph would put her away, no longer desiring to take her as his wife. And when at length this had come about, and his reason made known to the elders of the city, they would condemn her to stoning and name her an adulteress before the world. On a certain day in Mary's childhood, she had witnessed such a thing in the streets of Nazareth. The clamor, the mob, the shouts of derision, the cries of hate, the taking up and casting of stones by men and women suddenly become virtuous in their own eyes, vengeful in the name of the Lord. Mary remembered the accused girl, young and lovely to look upon, unable to flee from those who pursued her, how at length she had fallen in the dust of the street. And the image brought a great shuddering upon Mary. She covered her face with her shaken hands and wept. The fear of Mary was very, very real. We don't read it in the passage of Scripture that we have before us. But without doubt, with her cultural setting, in that day and age, as Mary rode back into Nazareth, her fear was as great as you can possibly imagine. The apparent illegitimate child in her womb could bring her death. As we've read from this novel, and as only sometimes a novel can, we've seen the depth of the emotion. So also we see it through film. And I wanted to show one other clip that brings us to the heart of this issue. Take a look.
to believe me how are they to understand are you frightened yes a husband has been chosen for me the law says i was to remain pure for a year How is he to believe this? Stay with us then. We will pray for guidance. Elizabeth. Why is it me God has asked? I am nothing. Mary? 
I believed you were a woman of great virtue. I have lived my life seeking honor. Honor. Mary, so how am I to answer this? If I claim this child is mine, I will be lying. I will have broken a law laid down by God. I would never ask you to lie. If I say this child is not mine, they will ask what I want to do. And if I accuse you, There is a will for this child, greater than my fear of what they may do. I will make no accusation. Without that, there can be no trial. You have shown great mercy, Joseph. For that I will be thankful. Matthew 1, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make Mary a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I want to ask the question, what were Joseph's options? What were Joseph's options? You know, we saw the, the strain and the emotion in his face as he looked upon Mary for that first time, recognizing that she was with child, that he knew it was not his, and that all he could suspect was that either she had had this vision as she had claimed, or that she was an adulteress. What were Joseph's options? The first, and very clearly, Joseph could have summoned the elders right then of the city. He could have called, to, called them together for a trial and put Mary on trial for adultery, which was punishable by stoning. That was a legal option available to Joseph at that very moment. He could have, without hesitation, have gone for that end. The Scripture in verse 19 says, but he was not wanting to make her a public example. That's a nice way of saying he was probably not wishing to stone her. Or at the very least, he was not wishing Mary to incur the perpetual stigma that adultery had on a first century Jewish woman. In other words, we can see very early on in the Gospel story, that Joseph was showing great mercy. A second option that was available to him is he could divorce Mary quietly, which is what we see in the text. He could spare Mary's life and avoid the embarrassment of a public trial. 
but yet endure a period of rumors and whispers by the community at Nazareth. It is enough in our culture when there is an out-of-wedlock uh, pregnancy. There, there is, uh, in our culture today, there is a measure of shame, although I think over time that measure of shame has lessened over the, over, over the decades in our culture. In that culture, significant, significant shame. Significant shame. And if Joseph were to divorce her quietly, if he were to spare Mary's life and not put her on trial, both he and she would incur a significant period of rumors and whispers. Clearly, Joseph considered this option because Matthew writes, Joseph was minded to put Mary away secretly. But as he neared his decision, a light shone in the darkness. Take a look at verse 20. But while Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. I'm struck by two great acts of God's mercy and benevolence in this text behind us. First and most obviously, I'm struck by the, the vision of the angel. This is the third vision by now in the nativity story where we see God intervening in a mighty and powerful way to show mercy and grace to those who are receiving this news. First, it was to Mary. How else could God explain to her that she was to be the mother of the Messiah but by an angelic vision? He prepared her for what lie ahead. Also, it was... Elizabeth and Zacharias, Zacharias' vision in the temple. He heard of John the Baptist. He heard there of the coming Redeemer. His wife became pregnant just as the angel had said. And those two visions combined, both Mary's and Zacharias's and Elizabeth with him, allowed great mercy and grace, great companionship, great trust to develop between Mary and Elizabeth. And here we have a third vision. A third angelic vision. One that comes at such a timely moment in the nativity story. Right when Joseph is prepared to put Mary away secretly, God intervenes through the angel and says, Joseph, Joseph, don't be afraid. This, this child is the child of the Holy Ghost. The great Redeemer of Israel. The Messiah. Take Mary as your wife. It took a vision. It took a vision to convince Mary of her virgin conception. It took a vision to enable Elizabeth to properly care for and encourage Mary in her first trimester of pregnancy. And now God in his mercy gave a confirming vision to Joseph to stay with Mary. These visions were acts of God's mercy. But secondly, and perhaps often overlooked, I'm struck by the first phrase of verse 20. It says, but while he thought about these things. Friends, Joseph was a man of great integrity. 
a man of great character. He did not make a rash decision. He could have. He did not make a rash decision. No doubt the enemy had filled his mind with seeds of suspicion. Surely Joseph's initial reaction was that Mary had committed adultery. Surely his initial reaction was that the child was illegitimate. What other explanation was there? But Joseph was a righteous man. He was a just man. And despite the apparent the apparently illegitimate child that grew within Mary's womb, he still took time to think about any decision he would make. Not only had God, God shown Mary mercy by, the giving, by giving her a companion in the person of Elizabeth, but God also blessed Mary with a gracious and patient and gentle husband. The angel's announcement to Joseph had caused him to consider an unlikely third option that he could take in reaction to Mary's pregnancy, and it is this. He could marry Mary, no pun intended. He could accept the child as his own and endure the lesser but still very real public disgrace of a betrothal pregnancy. And that's precisely what Joseph did. Take a look at verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, And he did not know Mary until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. A.T. Robertson writes this. He says, Joseph allowed himself to pass through, to pass before the public as the father of Jesus, even though it would mean that he had married Mary only a few months before the birth of Christ. This act was the only possible way to give protection to Mary and to make it so that Jesus should be born in wedlock. But even so, it would of necessity be understood that Joseph had taken advantage of Mary's betrothal to him. Did you catch that? The opportunity Joseph had to wipe his hands clean of Mary, to say... It's not mine. Mary is an adulteress. This child is illegitimate. The opportunity that Joseph had to wipe his hands clean, to thrust all of the shame and all of the disgrace and all of the dishonor upon Mary, his wife, the opportunity that he had to do just that, Joseph instead took that disgrace, took that dishonor, took that shame, and put it upon himself. And said, it's mine. I'll claim the child. I'll still marry Mary of Nazareth. A betrothal pregnancy. Let that be the whisper in Nazareth. Let, be, let that be the shame that comes upon me. Joseph took the shame reserved exclusively for Mary and put it upon himself. He said, I will bear this burden. The enemy of God diligently sought to bring charges of shame and illegitimacy upon the birth of Jesus Christ. He did so at the time of Joseph and Mary. 
He did so at the time of Celsus in the second century A.D. And he continues to do so in our present day and age. One need not look far in a Christian bookstore to find responses by Christian authors to various secularists and humanists and atheists who write disparaging words about the corrupt lineage of Jesus Christ. I could name off many books that do just that. The enemy is especially skilled at planting seeds of doubt and seeds of fear in the minds of God's people. He knows how to discourage. He knows how to make your heart afraid. But the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not overtake it. When Josh McDowell, uh, when his mother died, Josh McDowell, most of you know, a very well-known Christian author, speaker, teacher, apologist. Josh McDowell and his son, Sean, who's very local here. I got a chance to go to seminary with him. Great, great guy. His son, Sean, has is, is fallen in his father's footsteps in many ways. But Josh McDowell tells the story when his mother died. Um, his mother passed a number of years ago, and... Uh, at the time of her passing, Josh McDowell was filled with great fear and great doubt. He was filled with great fear and great doubt because he did not know if his mother was a Christian. He had gone through his entire life not knowing, not being told by his mother that she, in fact, was a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And as she died, as she passed away, Josh took that burden and it was heavy upon his shoulders for many days after her funeral. And he would, uh, he would cry and he would mourn and he would grieve and he would ask God day and night, God, please give me some kind of confirmation. Show me some kind of evidence that my mother is in fact with you. God, I can't bear this burden any longer. I can't bear this fear and this doubt that, you, that has plagued me. I want to know, was she a Christian? It was not many days after Josh McDowell's mother's funeral that Josh was found walking on a pier in Southern California. As he walked to the end of the ocean's pier, there sat an elderly woman seated in a beach chair with a fishing pole over the edge, fishing for the catch of the day. The woman looked at Josh peculiar, uh, with a peculiar look. She could tell that he was hurting. At that very moment, Josh McDowell was thinking about his mother, wondering if she was with the Lord. The woman looked to Josh and she asked him, Where is your home? Where are you from? A bit caught off guard, he turned and saw the woman and he responded to her. He said, I'm from Michigan. I'm from Union City. He says, well, actually, uh, nobody's heard of of Union City, so I'll I'll say that I'm from, and she interrupted, Battle Creek? And he said, yeah, Battle Creek. She said, I had a cousin in Battle Creek. She said, did you know the McDowell family? And he said, yes, 
Yes, I'm Josh McDowell. I'm Josh McDowell. The woman looked at him and said, Oh, I'm a cousin of your mother's. We grew up together. Josh turned to the woman and said, Could you please tell me, do you know anything of my mother's early spiritual life as a child? The woman turned to him and said, Why, of course. It was at a tent meeting long ago when we were small children that a preacher gave the gospel message of Jesus Christ and I and your mother went forward to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. All fear, all doubt, erased by the mercy of Jesus Christ. All fear, all doubt, erased by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overtake it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank You, Father, for Your great grace and mercy. Father, You show it to us in so many ways. We are learning here in, in this Christmas season the abundant grace and mercy You showed to Mary of Nazareth, the mother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, You confirmed this virgin conception by a vision. You gave her companionship in Elizabeth. You gave her a patient and a husband who was not rash in Joseph. In all of this, Father, You calmed her fears and her doubts. Mercy triumphed over apparent illegitimacy. And Father, we know that You provided in this way because Your Son's coming to earth was inevitable. It would not be stopped because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overtake it. And so, Father, today we recognize that there's no need to fear. There's no need to doubt that in those moments of fear and in those moments of doubt, You bring grace. You bring mercy. You brought it to Mary. You brought it to Josh McDowell. And Father, we believe You can bring it to us. Father, if there's anyone here today who is fearful or in doubt, perhaps they're concerned about their own salvation, Father, give them grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Remind them that by simply believing in Him, they are a child of You forever. Perhaps there is other fear and doubt in this room, Father. You know it and You alone. But I pray, Father, that You would bring into this person's life an Elizabeth, a timely companion. That You'd bring into this person's life a Joseph, a patient and careful listener. Father, that You would remind us day by day that in the midst of great fear, great trepidation, and great doubt, You are quick to show mercy. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.